The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Want to better understand the shifts going on in retail? Then listen in to my chat with Alex Partners, Joel Bynes. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Jennifer Saba, a New York-based columnist for Breaking Views, the global financial commentary arm of Reuters. In this episode, I have a conversation with Joel Bynes, the global co-leader of the retail practice at business consulting firm Alex Partners. With three decades of consumer and brand experience under his belt, Joel has been a fly on the wall in many retail boardrooms. He has a lot to share. In January, Joel zoomed in from Dallas to discuss his new book, The Retail Economy, about the power inversion between businesses and consumers. Hi, Joel. Welcome to the program. It's good to have you on the exchange, and I'm eager to talk to you about your expertise in the retail industry. So first of all, let's talk about uh, the book that you just wrote called The Retail Economy. Is this your first book? Yes, this is my first book. Yeah. And hello, yeah. and thank you for having me. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So let's kind of talk about really the the premise of this. And and I I want you to explain something because I've always thought about retail with the phrase that the customer is always right. And you basically are explaining that this is now shifted even further, that now the, the power differential is now completely with the customer. So explain that to me, like, what does that mean? And what does that look like? So I've spent my entire 30-year career in retail, and I've studied retail. I'm a student of the retail industry going back, really, millennia, and I'm fascinated by it. And the phrase, the customer is always right, is something that we hear all of the time. It was manifested better and worse by certain retailers over time. But the one thing about the phrase, the customer is always right, is it was never connected with the phrase, and the customer can do something about it. So yes, of course, if you had a bad customer experience, you might go and tell somebody in your book club or you might go and tell a family member or something like that. But historically, there really wasn't that much you could do about it. Today, the customer doesn't just have agency, which is effectively what the phrase the customer is always right is about. The customer also has power. Mm -hmm. And the customer has never had power in the relationship dynamic Uh, at least that's the premise of my book, until recently, the last decade, decade and a half or so. And that agency plus power dynamic, that's a really important change that retail businesses need to come to understand. So, and that change, are you you saying that that change happened because of effectively it was the internet and then, you know, all of a sudden consumers had research tools at their fingertips. They could go on to various websites or social media and Internet has not only changed how people shop, but also it gives them the the tools to kind of be more vocal, I guess. It It is precisely the way that you said it. So a lot of times people will say, is it because of e-commerce? And I say, no, it is not because of e-commerce as a thing. It's not because of live shopping or TikTok or any specific thing. It's because of what technology has given to the consumers. First of all, it's given them access to information, as you said, and it's also given them a platform to disseminate that information much, much more broadly. And so, you know, the phrase that I use in the book is historically, if we were making a major purchase, we used to turn to consumer reports for advice. And today we turn to consumers reports for advice. Mm-hmm. That's the fundamental shift that's gone on. More than that, if you want to take it one level deeper, 
consumers themselves have the ability to become retailers in a way that has never been easier as well. So you see just this huge advent of direct consumer businesses. If anyone is on Instagram or TikTok or anywhere else, you have all these makers. It's never been easier to have an idea, connect to someone somewhere in the world who can manufacture the product, set up a website, get a third-party payment system and start selling stuff, which is the consumers essentially taking over the castles that used to be occupied by retail executives. So it's the technology entirely. It's not e-commerce specifically. So let's talk about some of those castles then, because, you know, as you've alluded, your entire expertise is in in retail and you've you've looked at the sector for a really long time. And I'm assuming you've been a, a fly on the wall in corporate boardrooms for retailers. You don't have to name names, although I, we would welcome it if you wanted to. <laughs> but like, what is the situation where you, you know, that you found yourself in where you're like, this retailer does not get what's happening? Yeah, well, I mean, I do name names in the book and I tell a very particular story in the book about a board meeting at Radio Shack many, many, many years ago. So most of the people that were, you know, involved in this are long since retired, mm-hmm. but but this was a this was a retailer that had been in deep decline for a very long time. It was competing in a space that was not in decline. It seemed to be perennially unable to figure out strategically where they resided in the customer relationship. And the solution that was being presented at this board meeting that I was attending was to take out a Super Bowl ad. And it's funny you say fly on the wall because I feel like I've been squashed by fly swatters in more than my fair share of board meetings. But I happened to say I'm not entirely sure that blowing a huge chunk of the last remaining cash that this company has is the right strategic move. Little side anecdote, it was probably one of the 10 best Super Bowl ads that's ever been made in the history of Super Bowl ads. And I would encourage everyone to Google the Radio Shack Super Bowl ad. It's a bunch of 80s celebrities ransacking a Radio Shack store, demanding that they want their store back. But that doesn't do it justice. You have to watch. It's The cameos are spectacular for people of a certain vintage. But Radio Shack filed for bankruptcy three or four months after the Super Bowl ad. It didn't change anything. So that's an anecdote I use in the book to illustrate the, the way that retail executives used to think, and in many cases still do think. I use some other anecdotes about, like for example, one of the, I have this model of six C's, which are these ingredients that you use to kind of cook a dish that your customers want to buy, and convenience is one of the C's. And I use a couple of examples by way of contrasting various convenience strategies, and not to belabor the point, but the, the point really is, if you're a retail executive and you find yourself discussing a customer convenience from the perspective of how it is going to save you money or make your business more efficient, which is the way I find most executives still talk these days, then you've missed the point. Because if it's convenient, it has to be convenient for your customer, not convenient for you. Uh, So I make those distinctions throughout the book. So I, I want to talk a, a little more about just kind of the, the change in the consumer dynamic that you, that you talk about, because if I just in reading some of the passages, it seems to me that what you're saying is like it used to be that you could pretty much define a consumer and count on that type of consumer. Right. Yep. 
And now what you're saying is you can't even do that anymore. Right. People are sh maybe shapeshifters, for, for lack of a better word, that you yep. have somebody who will go and buy a $4,000 Chanel purse, but then turn around and look for the best bargain on an airplane, you know, best bargain ticket yep. on an airplane, for example. 100%. Or, or stop at Costco, you know, yep. you know, buy Cheerios in bulk. I mean, that would be maddening if I'm a retailer and I'm trying to, to you know, either change my business or come up with a new strategy, right? Yep. So how do you think about the consumer then if what you're saying is the consumer should be at the center of everything? Yeah, so I think there's two questions in there and if it's okay, let me separate them yeah, for just yeah. a minute. Because there's the question about what is the consumer, the new consumer, and then there's the question about what do companies do about the fact that there's a new consumer. So okay. so there's there are two things really that I say about the consumer in the me-tail economy. The first is establishing the me-centricity of today's consumer. Consumers are entirely self-centric consumers at the moment, connecting with one another in ways that retailers can't control. So consumers are controlling the narrative that had historically been at least attempted to be controlled by, you know, we've heard the phrase, the merchant prince. Not only is that sexist because most of the best merchants I know were women, but it happened to be a thing, which is these people thought that they were the, the ones who decided what consumers would buy. And for a long time, it was that way. That's the first concept is, is that's over with. Consumers are in charge of the narrative. The second concept is the one that you talked about when you referred to shape-shifting, which is this idea that I lay out in the book of something called the quantum consumer. And I call it the quantum consumer because it reminds me of a particle in quantum physics that can exist in two places simultaneously. Now, I was a philosophy major at a liberal arts college. The last science class I took was eighth grade biology. So that's the extent of my physics knowledge. But the concept of a particle being able to exist in two spaces at the exact same time is exactly what I'm trying to say about the quantum nature of the consumer. And you use the Costco example. If you are shopping at a Costco and you look at the gas station line, you're going to see car after car after car with luxury nameplates, Mercedes, BMW, Porsche, what have you, $100,000 plus cars, people waiting in line six, seven, eight, 20 minutes to save 11 cents a gallon on gas. That cognitive dissonance is what we're talking about, about the me-centric and quantum consumer. So the issue is not so much that they're quantum, the issue is, or really, it's, it's wrapped up in quantum, but the issue is that they exist in two worlds simultaneously. They aren't these reliable demographics that could be marketed to. You know, we've all been this type of consumer before, but yeah. now we can actually do something about it. And that's the big change is the, the complexity for the retailer is that at any given moment in time, you are not one thing anymore. You're more than one thing as a consumer. And that's something that technology has enabled um, in spades. So that's the, that's the big eye-opening aha is the me-centricity and the quantum nature of the consumer. Okay, right? so let me use kind of, stick with the real world examples then, because let, let's talk about Costco if, if that's okay. Yeah. I mean, it's been around a while, but it's always kind of held up as a, uh, a success story, right? Mm -hmm. And in terms of their subscription service and, you know, just the, what they offer, right? So if I'm looking at Costco, where, or, or any sort of business like that? Where are the risks that this could go off the rails? Do you know what I'm saying? Kind of Absolutely. 
what yeah. you're like because they do a great job now but then what happens when people are like you know what i don't want to wait and in, in line for gas anymore or you know right well so there, there there is a question as to whether that will happen right because yeah. the, the, so it's possible that a core customer is going to shift so dramatically away from a retailer. You could compare Costco to Wawa, for example, just deep customer loyalty because of the service offering and a whole bunch of other things. There's a possibility that a consumer group on mass will just walk away from that, right? At some point, consumers are just going to say, well, if Costco can't get gas in my car in under 30 seconds, I'm never shopping at Costco again. I think that's unlikely because I think that what Costco has done is they've defined the the value system that their core customers have and they are relentlessly focused on making sure that everything they do delivers against that value system and that gets to your the second part of the question we were asking about before which is what should retailers do and costco is a great example of this because this is a company that i've followed for over 30 years i have seen over and over and over again external pressures and analyst reports and people telling Costco to do something that they shouldn't do, do things differently, offer a service that they don't currently offer. And Costco's executives have, for the most part, resisted all of that stuff because they have this framework. They know what ingredients their customers are attracted to, and they're focusing everything on those ingredients. And so as long, the, the, that's a very long way of saying as long as Costco continues to talk to their customers and continues to supply the things that their customers need and stop thinking about the things that their customers don't need, I think Costco is going to be fine. Example I use of this in the book, not to be overly long-winded about this, is Brian Cornell at Target. Brian Cornell became the CEO of Target. He basically said, well, our customers are telling us that they want better stores, they want better service experiences, they want more convenience. And so he started investing billions of dollars in brick and mortar stores at a time when everyone was basically saying brick and mortar stores are going to be gone. And he knew it was the right thing to do because he listened to customers. I don't want to give away that whole part of the book because I think it's just a fascinating story. Hubert Jolie at Best Buy is another perfect example of someone that did that. Yeah. And it sounds so simple to say that these executives started from the customer backwards, but that's really what they did. And then they maintained focus when everyone was telling them what they were doing was a mistake. They maintained focus because they believed in the consumer and they trusted that the consumers were telling them the right thing to do. So we're not talking about focus groups and then a bunch of market marketers sitting around. You know, we're not talking about strategy consultants defining these personas. That's the old way of thinking. It's about really understanding what it is that your customers value in you and making sure your entire operation, everything you do is focused on manifesting those values to your customer and shutting off all of the other ancillary stuff that gets in the way of doing that. So let me ask you about a, another trend that I have been seeing kind of pop up lately, which is this, there are investors that are asking like a Macy's, for example, to separate their e-commerce division from their brick and mortar stores. Mm -hmm. And I know uh, Saks Fifth Avenue is doing this. I'm, I'm curious, what do you think about that concept and strategy? And do you think it's a good one? 
So this is a very timely topic. It's a lot. People are talking about this quite a bit. And if you'll indulge me a little bit, let me just start at the highest level, which is the answer to is it a good idea or isn't it a good idea is it depends. It is yeah. not a good idea for every retailer. It is a good idea for some retailers. And what I would just say up front is anyone that is not in the middle of what is actually happening at Saks that is talking about whether it is a good idea or a bad idea does not know what they're talking about because mm -hmm. all of the the sort of gadfly retail analysts that are being quoted saying this is an anti-omni strategy and this is a uh, stores are important and this is going to this is going to somehow disadvantage the customer they don't know what they're talking about and they're completely wrong because if they knew what they were talking about, they would understand that, first of all, the only people in the entire universe that don't understand that you can separate customer facing activities and still deliver good services in a unified way are retailers for some reason. Every other industry in the world operates in sort of an outsourced model or a franchise model or whatever you think. So this isn't some crazy idea. This is a normal idea. It's just crazy because retailers do things the way they've always done it. Underneath that is massive complexity. There's a process that you would need to go through to first of all, think about whether it's a good idea for a particular company, then think about whether it's operationally feasible, then figure out how to create the agreements between the companies that are being separated and so on and so forth. And so it would take us longer than we have. We could talk all day about all of the complexity of it, but at the highest level, what this model is saying is they are un recognizing the primacy of the digital consumer, but the importance of the physical experience. And all they are doing is saying, if you separate into two entities, you can let each entity focus on the one thing that they're best at. You do that in an environment where it's invisible to the customer, then you have enhanced the customer value proposition and you are gonna take share from your competitors in your space and you're gonna grow faster than them because everyone else is just sitting around saying, oh, this is so silly, you can't close, you know, you can't do it and, and all that other sort of stuff. So, so that's what I would say. It's a very long answer, but it is, it's not a crazy idea at all. In fact, when you really unpack it, it's a pretty basic idea. And I mean, no offense to the Saks team, they were geniuses for thinking up this idea, but it's pretty basic once you understand what it is and what it isn't. And it makes a ton of sense for certain retailers and it yeah. doesn't make sense for other retailers. I, mean, I don't do really want to comment on specific ones on this one because it's okay. so live right now. Okay. Um, but well, but that's the that's the answer. Okay. Well, let let me ask you about another piece of news that that just came out this week, which is Amazon is now opening a store. I think a clothing store in Los yep. Angeles and in yep. a mall. It looks huge, and I I want you to talk a little bit about that because this this is an area at least I think, and maybe you can shed some light on this, that Amazon has had a hard time, I think, really dominating in, in, a, in a very specific way. And, and maybe I'm wrong in thinking that. I mean, I know a lot of people buy some of their stuff on there. And I know there are a lot of brands and retailers that are quite reluctant to, to go on to Amazon as well. But maybe you could talk about that and explain like your thoughts on the fact that they're flipping into this brick and mortar in a mall, right? Like, you know, in, in a huge space, it looks like. Like, what what do they, what are they doing? What do they have to offer? Like, how, how would you analyze that? Okay, so I, at the most strategic level, 
I think what everyone needs to understand is that when Amazon makes a decision like this, they're thinking generationally. So they don't particularly care per se what happens to this one store in the mall in California over time. They're using this as yet another way to determine what customer conveniences they need to offer in order to stay relevant to their customers. Mm-hmm. So 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 to say that they've decided that they're going to roll out thousands of stores nationwide or whatever, I don't think they know whether they will or they won't. And I don't think they care whether they do or they don't at the moment because they are willing to make these investments. The, if you think about it in a retail context, what Amazon is basically saying is our customers value convenience and we are going to find every single possible path towards continuing to provide that convenience to our customers that we can find. And we know that a large percentage of apparel retail in particular still happens in an offline setting. And so we want to see how we can be more convenient to our customers. So we're going to try to do it in an offline setting. Now, they've got all kinds of really interesting technology in the store. It's just like the first scan and go stores and all that stuff that that will ultimately find its way into more and more retail over time. but that's really what the root of this is, is they're exploring various ways to remain convenient to their customer. What I would say about the point about you know, there are a lot of brands that are reluctant to sell on Amazon. This is an age old channel conflict discussion. This is there were a lot of brands that were reluctant to sell in club stores that are now begging Costco to carry them because their consumers view Costco as a luxury retailer. There were a lot of brands that were reluctant to sell direct to consumers because they were worried that their retail distribution was going to change. This is no different. This has been going on forever. And eventually, brands are going to realize that if you want to stay relevant in a retail world, you need to be where your customer wants you to be when they want you to be there, period, Mm -hmm. and figure everything else out later. So, that's I'm not suggesting that every brand run and start selling on Amazon. I'm just saying that this concept of people don't want to sell on Amazon. This is like 1996 and having all of the manufacturers of luxury and other goods basically saying, well, we don't want to compete with our retail partners. And then, of course, they do. And now they all have direct to consumer businesses, luxury and mass. So this is just another one of those. This is I shouldn't be overblown. It's not some major existential crisis that we have. It's just another distribution channel that's opened up that businesses are trying to figure their way around. So let me ask you then about 2022. Obviously, the pandemic has accelerated e-commerce and e-commerce trends. What what do you see on the I mean, it's a big question for you, but what do you see on the horizon for retail this year? Like, what do you think is going to what are some of the big, big things we should be keeping an eye out for? Well, I mean, if you if you control for thing, you know, truly exogenous things that no one could control for, uh, you know, war or, you know, a a huge resurgence of a very virulent COVID variant. You know, if you kind of you put all that stuff aside, because because that that changes everything, you know, that kind of dynamic. If Russia invades Ukraine, if China invades Taiwan, like there's there's all kinds of stuff that would blow up whatever I'm about to say. But if you just sort of imagine that we were going to maintain kind of geopolitical sanity and and health, then I think there's two really interesting things to watch in 2022. 
The first is I believe that many, many, many retail businesses fooled themselves into thinking that they figured their stuff out and fixed their their things the things that ailed them in 20 late 2020 and certainly in 2021. I think that many 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 retail businesses were helped who knows a lot a little some by the various government stimulus plans that were absolutely necessary and hugely important to kind of keeping the rails on the country on the rails. But the retailers that understand that they got a tailwind mm-hmm. are working very, very hard on the problems and the opportunities that they had prior to early 2020. But there are a lot of retailers that are taking a victory lap for being so great in 2021. And I think most of those retailers are going to be sorry that they're doing it because. I think that 2022 is going to be the beginning of what it was before we had ever heard of COVID, which is it's going to be an in the trenches, minute by minute, hand to hand combat battle for the consumer. And I just feel like we're headed back to, I guess, and I hadn't thought about this before, but I guess we're headed back to the old normal, right? Mm. So the new normal was whatever the hell it was for the last two years. And now I think by and large, 2022's consumer model is going to be like the old normal, which people were calling the new normal before there was COVID. So I'm not sure which normal we're going back to. Well, I mean, but that's interesting you say that because you could apply that, I feel like, to other industries, like the banking industry, for example. I mean, I just was covering Netflix, you know, looking at their results. And so what I feel like is happening is sort of what you're saying is like it's going to be a a brutal knife fight, right? For and, and it feels different to me than it did in 2019. And I don't know if that is because the pandemic sort of accelerated and amplified everything. And so when you kind of flip back to where it was, it it's still going to be like it's going to be that fight on steroids, if that makes sense. It does yeah. make a lot of sense. And I, it's a very, very smart way to think about it. It's it's I hadn't actually I hadn't thought of it from that angle. But you're right, because because it's not like we're just going back to 2019 competitive yeah. landscape. We're going back to 2019's competitive landscape with a huge shift in the demand profile what people are buying and also how they're buying it that happened much faster than most retailers were anticipating. So that's interesting. But you're saying, I think the same thing I'm saying, which is if you could somehow, which is impossible, imagine that 2020 and 2021 had never happened and there wasn't a global pandemic, we would still be in the same fight for consumers' dollars that we were in prior to the global pandemic. If retailers essentially go back to competing the way they competed before with the thought that the consumer is by and large the same as before, sure, maybe we buy a little bit more online, but nothing fundamental has really changed. That's going to be a huge problem for the industry. So you mean like pre-pandemic? Correct. you're if they don't understand, you yeah. think, yeah, that, that things are just going to flip back to 2019 and we're just, oh, yeah, that was a blip or we had a, a, a huge tailwind from e-commerce, but it's going to subside. That's or even if it doesn't subside, what they'll do is they'll basically say, OK, well, look, our mix <laughs> shifted from 11 percent online to 30 percent online. Yeah. So what are we going to do about it? Well, we probably have to reevaluate our cost structure and we have to renegotiate our distribution and logistics contracts and we have to get better rates with FedEx or UPS or USPS or whatever the case may be. All of that is old thinking. 
right? Mm -hmm. The new thinking is, yeah, the market shifted, our market shifted. So now a third of our customers are buying from us online. But those customers and the customers that we want to attract are changed customers. So instead of thinking about how we can kind of regain profitability after two years of just investing in the things we needed to invest in so we could get any business at all, you start thinking about how you would reinvent your business. If you if you do buy into the concept of the me-centric quantum consumer, you're going to come out the other side with different choices. That's kind of what I'm saying. What I'm saying is if you just connected the historical operational strategy from up to 2019 and then oops global pandemic and now all right you know what we got to get back to business as usual and you imagine that you're just on the same curve maybe the line moved up or down yeah i'm saying you're on a completely different graph you've got to understand that you're competing for a different consumer differently and go back and revisit the things that you thought you needed to do pre-pandemic that's what that's what i'm trying to say you might end up with the same list but i doubt it so, so let me ask you this and before we go, how do you think about brick and mortar footprint, right, for a lot of retailers versus a lot of them are starting to shrink that footprint? What, yep. Where do you think that's going to be headed going forward? So look, I, 2021, we opened more stores than we closed, which is the first time that's happened that I can remember, at least in the last decade. That is a very positive sign for what I think is going to happen with brick and mortar footprints, which is retailers are going to understand the store has a different role mm -hmm. in the retail economy. And mm -hmm. once they understand that the stores have different roles, then they're going to evaluate their store portfolio differently. The stores have a critically important role to play, but it's different than the role they played before. And company executives are gonna just have to think about them differently. But I happen to be very optimistic about brick and mortar retail. It's just gonna have to change in terms of just being a spot where people show up and buy stuff. Okay, well, great. Well, Joel, thank you so much for- Thank you, Jen, this is great. So have a good day. You have a good day too. I really enjoyed this, thanks. That wraps up this episode of The Exchange. I want to give a shout out to Sharon Lamb, who produced this podcast. If you haven't already, please sign up on iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere else you go for audio cravings. Also, check out our sister podcast, The Views Room. And of course, don't forget to read breakingviews.com. Thanks for tuning in and listening. <laughs>